Hi everyone, Sam here. Thank you so much for listening to The Policy Dispatch. Before we dive in, if you want to enjoy premium access to the podcast and want to read or listen to the unmissable and informative journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Policy Dispatch. I'm your host, Sam Morgan, here to shepherd you through the mountainous terrain that is the energy transition. Did you know that we humans spend about 90% of our time in buildings? Hardly surprising given that's where most of us sleep, eat, work, watch TV and listen to podcasts about energy. In Europe, 40% of energy is soaked up by buildings and 36% of emissions are produced heating, cooling and lighting them. They are a massive headache for policymakers looking to scrub CO2 to keep energy bills under control and shockingly to make people happy. They are also a massive opportunity and there are several reasons why. To delve into some of them and look at what is being done on the policy front to look after, maintain and most importantly improve our buildings, today I'm joined by Adrian Joyce, the director of the Renovate Europe campaign, which aims to slash building energy demand 80% by mid-century. Before we get into the discussion about the very infrastructure of our lives, our buildings, it's time for the obligatory policy dispatch quiz question. Today, I'm asking you, globally, buildings or real estate is the most valuable asset class, far outstripping both the equity and bond markets. But how much is it worth? Is it A, $17 trillion, B, $21 trillion, C, $172 trillion, or D, $217 trillion. Now, a trillion has 12 zeros to try and help you visualise that number. Answer coming at the end of the episode. Now, on with the show. So, Adrian, thank you so much for joining me here for this week's episode, for this chat about the world of buildings, renovations, and energy efficiency. Uh, It's a subject that's uh, intrinsically linked to the geopolitical situation we find ourselves in, as well, of course, to the wider climate crisis. Uh, So it's a great moment to check in with you about where things stand uh, and what we need to be watching. I thought we'd catch up, um, first of all, because we're here at this uh, C4E event in uh, Slovakia, which is all about energy efficiency and how to position the issue higher up the political agenda, amongst other things. Um, In the opening event, I thought this was quite interesting. There was a question for the audience, and it was basically about um, what are the big barriers in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, And the audience said that political will and financing are two of the main ones, among some other things like lack of beer. Um, Do you agree with that, that these two issues are the main thing that is holding back things like the renovation wave um, and wider policies linked to renovation, or is it a bit more complex than that? Sam, it's great to be here with you this afternoon. Delighted to take part in this podcast. And indeed, we're here in Samarin in uh, Slovakia at the Central Eastern European Energy Efficiency Forum. We're having a wonderful week. 250 participants have turned up. Uh, More than 20% of them are government officials or agency officials. So a very high calibre of participant and a great uh, calibre of information is being gathered. 
Indeed, in the opening plenary that you referred to, uh, we challenged the audience to say what are the barriers that they face here. And I was really interested to see that the twin challenges that came up were indeed political will, for which we must understand lack of political will, and financing, which was frankly not a surprise. And during the discussion, it really struck me that uh, this, these two are intrinsically linked. And a later panelist uh, put it beautifully. She said, um, financing is an emanation of political will. And I thought that was really putting things the right way around. Um, because the two are intrinsically linked. There are barriers, not only in this region. They are difficult across the European Union. And indeed, in the Renovate Europe campaign, which I direct, uh, we've been saying this already for 12 years. Uh, so we do occasionally feel a frustration that the message has not got through. But when we hear it being uh, phrased in a new way, like we did last evening, then I think uh, new uh, ways of addressing the problem can begin to arise. So to boost political will, it's uh, beginning to emerge that more engagement with uh, civil society, more engagement with uh, the business community in this region would potentially uh, help the politicians to have a bit more ambition, a bit more courage. Uh, we heard that discussed last night too, that uh, a certain level of bravery is needed because you're kind of going against the, the accepted uh, norms uh, when you begin to try and put really ambitious uh, efficiency programs in place um, in regions where uh, a big concern is the overall standard of living maybe and uh, in the Central Eastern European region. Uh, they've been very challenged by the energy security issues that were uh, emanating from the uh, Russian aggression in Ukraine, another theme of our deliberations this week. So getting the political will moving is a kind of a cooperative um, action between all the actors and the stakeholders uh, in this region. On the financing side, uh, I mean, I've been encouraged now for 18 months or so by the very high amount of funds that are being made available through the public purse, through EU funding. It's been 500 billion almost. Uh, well, actually that 500 billion that was mentioned was spent uh, subsidizing energy bills mm -hmm. of citizens. And actually uh, it was stated that uh, it was equivalent to four years of the needed funding for energy efficiency measures. So we've kind of uh, wasted uh, that money, uh, even though we fully understand why it was uh, spent or why the subsidies were given. The reality is they are short-term uh, fixes and not long-term solutions to the overall uh, needs in, in society. So on the financing side, <clears throat> with the amount of public funding that's available, we see a key question, how do you use that money or how can that money be best deployed to encourage private financing to come? And it has to be more than matching. Uh, we heard this morning from the European Commission that the money being put forward by the EU funding, all the different streams, and there are many, I won't go into that, it's a complex area, but that funding equates to between 12 and 15% of what's needed. So between 85 and 87% of what's needed must come from the private mm -hmm. purse. So how do you use uh, good uh, financial instruments, good financing, financing schemes to encourage, and I would rather use that word, to encourage uh, private financing to come on stream. We mentioned the, the 500 billion for energy supply subsidies um, and how that equates to 
nearly half a decade of energy efficiency uh, measures, um, to sort of be pessimistic about it, does that mean that the window of opportunity that the Ukraine invasion has afforded this sector has been missed? Or as one of the speakers said yesterday, actually, the fact that our society basically exists in a bit of a perma crisis, <laughs> there's always something going on, um, means that there is still both time and political will waiting to actually do something about this? Or do you think that there is a ticking clock of sorts to actually get public institutions, private sector to wake up and actually do more? So I think the urgency is extreme. There's no question about that. The, the window of opportunity uh, is closing. Um, but I can't allow myself to think that we've missed this opportunity. Um, because if I did, then I would probably give up what I, the work that I do. Um, and I have uh, a great uh, belief in our capacity as a community, uh, across policymakers and stakeholders and civil society, to really ultimately wake up to the challenges that face us. And it is really by the kind of public discourse that we're uh, moderating here at events like this that I think can be step changes in the consciousness about uh, what needs to be done and how urgent it is to begin to act. But if I could extend the, the implication of your question into the EU legislative framework, uh, the Fit for 55 package, which isn't yet closed off, and a key element from our perspective is still in, under negotiation, that's the Buildings Directive. Um, if that uh, whole package comes to the kind of conclusion that we um, hope, then we face the challenge of implementing it on the ground. And here is where that opportunity could then be grasped. So by mobilizing our national authorities, by mobilizing the agencies responsible, by mobilizing the stakeholder communities in the implementation phase moving forward, and that will start 2024, I think we can, by 2030, be in a position where hopefully we'll look back on this conversation and say that was prescient and actually we've managed to get moving at the scale that we need to. And that's because the European Union has been courageous in putting out a package of legislation that when adopted by the member states and when the member states then bring it back to their own capitals to implement it, we could find that we have a really um, strong framework through which to achieve the um, energy efficiency benefits that we know we can reap uh, in the European Union. You mentioned the Green Deal and specifically the mm -hmm. Buildings Directive, the EPPD. Um, there's this creeping sensation at the moment of um, this momentum towards hitting the brakes on some of the Green Deal's policies. During the early days of the Ukraine invasion, there were hints about you know the emissions trading system would be suspended. That never came mm -hmm. to pass, of course. Um, we've seen two European Parliament committees this week, in fact, um, vote down a nature protection rule. There was the saga with emission standards for cars. Emmanuel Macron is talking about regulatory pauses for new environmental laws, this kind of narrative. Are you concerned that this could affect the building sector as well? Or do you think that this is, you know, comparing apples and oranges, that it's very much, it's easier almost to make the argument that building legislation is a common good, there is political will mm -hmm. for it, whereas these other things that I just mentioned are a little bit more controversial to some people or, or harder to actually make the argument for. Mm -hmm. 
The short answer to your question is yes, I am concerned for the building directive. Um, but on these moves about the regulatory pause, about the pushback that we're seeing, frankly, I think that's electioneering. Mm. And uh, the political parties are beginning to test the ground about what their manifestos should say ahead of the European elections in May 24. I consider it super early for them to be testing the ground in this way. But yeah, yeah mm. it, seems, it seems like they see it as the soft underbelly of, 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 of public opinion uh, where they can potentially get some kudos and support uh, within their constituencies. Of course, I regret it, but I do think that uh, the Buildings Directive, as the delayed directive in the Fit for 55 package, may well fall victim to this electioneering, and it is a concern. So we are working with uh, other partners, uh, but in the Renovate Europe campaign, we have our 48 partners with us to try and palliate this, to try and ensure that the, a certain level of ambition, particularly around minimum energy performance standards, gets adopted in the final text. At this point, sitting in May 23, uh, I have no idea uh, when the end date is. We are hoping it's October 23, but I'm afraid it might be Jan or Feb 24. And the longer it goes on, the more this electioneering impact uh, will uh, affect the outcome. Mm. So yes, I do worry about it. Uh, I wish it wasn't the case, but uh, this is a politician's approach to their careers. It is at elections, they, they win or lose, and they always want to win, of course, and retain their seats. So they tend to do what they feel will be right. Um, and. Um, Actions in the building sector are always medium and long term. It's very hard to have uh, really meaningful actions in the building sector in the very short term. Uh, so the, it, it becomes something that, uh, they, that can be a target, unfortunately. So I do worry. Going, going back to two of the, the speakers at the event so far, um, one of them said, you know, politicians need to wake up and see that supporting these kind of initiatives is actually going to win them votes in the yes. long run if they think about it. And another, the representative from the Croatian government, who I, I was kind of struck by the fact that um, she said, no, she has bi-weekly meetings with the prime minister That's about right. renovations and things. So it's, um, it's fascinating to see how different political uh, landscapes are approaching mm -hmm. this and what that's going to mean when 27 of them come together. I mean, it's difficult, like you say, to estimate what's going to happen. Well, listening to that debate last night, uh, it struck me that uh, when you think about the building sector, it is the infrastructure of our lives. We spend 90% of our life inside buildings, whether it's our work, our school, or our leisure facilities, our homes. And uh, the, the quality of those buildings affects our mental and physical well-being. Uh, without high-quality buildings, we have a society that's suboptimal, that's operating suboptimally, if you like. So realistically, the question of uh, energy performance of buildings and overall quality of buildings and indoor environmental quality ought to be a whole government uh, issue. And it ought to be something that survive, you know, that, that isn't cross-party, that all parties can get behind. It should not be a party political issue because good buildings, good society, good prospects, I mean, it's a win-win-win for everybody. That message does not seem to sink in and uh, we tend to have a very short-term, short close, kind of physically close uh, perspective uh, on what we do and what actions and what motivates us. And I do know that p uh, people uh, worry about the disruption 
that energy renovation brings with it. Uh, and I don't deny there will be disruption, but there are emerging approaches where that disruption is vastly minimized. And uh, it is possible today to have a deep energy renovation of buildings uh, of all sizes that does not require the occupants to move out. And that is a message I would like to have people hear more loudly, more clearly, that we are uh, an innovative sector, that we are uh, continuing to innovate and devise new approaches, including industrialized approaches, that mean that this is not a disruptive um, process. It, there is an impact during the works, but it can be very short and the end result is always pleasing. Uh, a zero energy build building is always a great thing to have. Hi everyone, Sam here again. Just wanted to remind you and maybe your colleagues as well that premium access to the pod and Foresight's brilliant journalism is just a click away. Try our subscription for 30 days for just 29 euros. That gives you access to our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe Follow the link in the show notes. Now, back to the show. I, I remember the uh, the very first episode of this uh, <laughs> podcast series, actually, with um, Kieran Cuff, mm -hmm. and we were doing it online, and uh, we had to pause the recording because there was building work going on next door, which I thought was a little bit ironic, but such is life, you know. Can't mm -hmm. always uh, exist in a comfort, comfortable, quiet environment all of the time, and if something needs to be done to improve that, uh, such is life. I mean, just going back to the financing for a moment, because that seems to be one of the, you know, that is the, the common thread through a lot of the events here today and also um, your wider campaign as well, that there is a lot of money on the table. Mm -hmm. um, it's not something that needs to derail the process at all. Um, the two biggest things over the last couple of years worldwide have been the COVID pandemic and the invasion of Ukraine. Um, the EU's two responses for that were the recovery and resilience facility. 800 billion euros or so of, of grants and loans. I don't know how much that is now with inflation. I'll, I'll stick with that figure. Um, and the Repower EU initiative, which was essentially meant to get us off Russian hydrocarbons. How do you rate those two instruments and how they've been, how the potential of them has been used so far? Is, are both of them being taken advantage of? I, I think I know the answer is not completely. Um, are these two instruments where renovation, the renovation way can really be triggered and you get to this critical mass then where mm. your, your job becomes a lot easier, essentially. Well, the National Recovery and Resilience uh, plans from the Recovery and Resilience Facility are a more promising source for our sector because building renovation was earmarked as one of the key uh, activities that could be financed under that, um, that instrument. So the Renovate Europe campaign, in fact, undertook a study to find out how much was uh, dedicated towards uh, building renovation as opposed to all the other eligible strands. And we've discovered that out of the 800 million, approximately 63 to 67 billion is pledged towards building renovation mm -hmm. across the period to 2027, which is the eligible period for the funds. And uh, that funding is being released in stages uh, based on the National Re Recovery and Resilience Plans, which in general have been fairly well structured in many countries. Um, there are some where uh, there, in every country there's at least one or two elements that need, need improvement. But uh, it seems uh, all countries 
included an element of building innovation. From, it's triggered progress everywhere. So it has triggered progress everywhere. And the, 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 the way of accessing that money was a little more streamlined than for traditional EU funding, mm -hmm. which was attractive then to member states. Mm -hmm. The difficulty has been that it has then retarded the preparations for the normal funding streams under the multi-annual financial framework, which is uh, currently 21 to 27. Mm -hmm. And plans were supposed to be uh, in, uh, approved and in and approved by the Commission before 21. And it was only at the end of last year, end of 22, that the plans were approved. And it's only now that the operational programs, as they're called, are beginning to get going. Mm -hmm. In that um, stream, we are more very disappointed. We have also undertaken a study, and it appears that only 22 billion from that has been allocated towards buildings. And that could be, ex that, 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 that expenditure can extend to 29. Mm -hmm. So between now and 29, we have less than 100 billion pledged by member states from EU funding towards building renovation. A fifth of the subsidies for energy supply. Exactly, that we've seen. That yes, if you put it that way. So, the, so that 100 billion divided by, by seven, so call it 15 billion a year, I'm afraid this is only a drop in the ocean of what's needed in our sector. And it brings back to the question then of how do we, um, as a community, find means for the private financing to flow. And uh, among those uh, approaches, we've seen <coughs> in the proposal for the Buildings Directive the idea of what are called mortgage portfolio standards to be introduced, where banks and financing institutions would have to uh, look into their, the assets they carry in their portfolios and ensure that the energy performance across the portfolio is of a certain level. And that can uh, encourage banks to uh, create new products because it's a new market, and then they can offer that to existing mortgage holders with whom they already have a contract. Mm -hmm. And that's a big advantage because that existing contract can just be um, supplemented with a, a top-up loan mm -hmm. over the long period of the loan, so a low cost to the building owners. So mortgage portfolio standards are looking like one promising instrument to release um, some of the tied up equity in homes. Uh, one calculation that I recall says that there's about 7 trillion euro in equity tied up in the homes of Europe. So certainly enough money there to tackle that if the instruments are available and assuming they're marketed correctly, people will want to do it because then they have a zero energy bill moving forward. Because remember, it's another message. If you undertake energy efficiency measures today that reduce your energy needs for heating and cooling, that redu reduced need is forever. It's not just one year, it's for every year that you're in that building. And that has a high value, and that value is not understood, I think, beyond maybe the expert community that's present, mm -hmm. present here. Yes, yeah, so the, the figure you mentioned um, made me think of all those adverts that you get on TV, probably around Europe as well, you know, make your money work for you. Mm. Um, there seems to be a complete disconnect then between, you know, people realizing, oh, someone, a speaker at the, the event I just remembered said, as soon as you convince people that um, the money they have saved up could be going into whether or not it's loft insulation, heat pumps, you name it, instead of being eaten away by inflation, which is a rather unpleasant feeling, I find, you know, as soon as you start thinking about the, the money that you've earned just being flitted away into the ether, instead of it being used for something tangible. Um, so how do you how do you make that argument? Is it ongoing? Is it just has to be done long enough for people to get the message? Or 
You know, I think that the reality is that there are horses for courses, as we say in Ireland and England. And uh, depending on the socioeconomic group that you're targeting, you have to have a different kind of instrument. And that message you've just uh, mentioned of saying to people, your savings are being frittered away by inflation, only appeals to a small number of people. I think the, 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 the super rich, this doesn't wash at all. The poor don't have savings. And so there's, and even within the middle class grouping that has a certain amount of savings, the high number of those also won't be motivated by this, this factor. So it's really tricky, but we do need to have um, financing packages or financing approaches that are tailored to the different socioeconomic groups. And when you think, as the European Union has done quite successfully, about the most vulnerable and those that are in energy poverty, here I think everybody must agree that there should be full-scale subsidies for helping those people get, the, get, their, get themselves out of energy poverty, get them into warm, healthy homes. Uh, when we come to the, the middle tranche, then it's a, it's a mix, isn't it, of their savings of maybe a certain percentage of subsidy or grant, plus maybe a preferential loan so that the package together makes sense mm -hmm. for them. And for those who can afford it, that's the answer, they can afford it. They should then be taking these opportunities up uh, because in any event, that uh, socioeconomic group appreciates the bottom line and if the bottom if the outgoings are lower over time they know that their uh, quality of life can go up through expenditures if we if we talk about subsidy schemes because they're <coughs> a fantastic on paper policy to get any green technology into society um in the wake of the covid pandemic and also more recently um We've seen quite a lot of schemes, you know, you always get the, the headline because it's some outlandish figure. Italy had a, the super bonus, right, mm -hmm. which is basically paying you to mm -hmm. do this, mm -hmm. which has you know, fallen by the wayside somewhat. And at this event as well, different people have shared different you know, examples of subsidy schemes in their own countries that have had deficiency, weaknesses or outright failings, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Um, you can't obviously have one template that fits everybody. You said it yourself, horses for courses. What works in Spain isn't going to work in Finland. Um, so how do you actually get these subsidy schemes designed well? Is there something that the EU can do, technical assistance, something like this, that can help ministries design something well? Or is that then opening yourself up to the argument of, you know, Brussels is telling us to do this, we're not going to do it at all? I think that for subsidy schemes, there are some characteristics or criteria that are common that makes for successful subsidy schemes. And let me outline a couple that come to mind. I may not get the full list uh, here, here this afternoon. But number one, subsidy schemes should not be based on annual budget cycles. Mm -hmm. Subsidy schemes for the building sector should be at least three years long, preferably five years long at a minimum. Mm -hmm with then a decision for renewal at least one year in advance of the end of the term. The second characteristic of subsidy schemes is that they should not, as far as possible, ever be designed for single measures. Multiple measures are always needed in buildings, and I see this, say this as an ex-practicing architect. For example, insulate tight, ventilate right. Mm -hmm. Never put in a heating system without controls and room thermostats. I mean, these are common sense uh, physical factors in building physics. Mm -hmm. So subsidy schemes should always subsidize multiple measures. Mm -hmm. Third characteristic, 
The um, subsidy schemes should always lead to a measurable improvement in the energy performance of the building, ideally uh, backed up by real performance data. There's no point in giving subsidies for mini steps in the improvement of the energy efficiency because you're convincing the owner that they've done their bit and yet they've locked in a major potential that could have been achieved maybe with just a 10% extra expenditure. Then you add so, 10 or 15 years to that family homes decision-making process then, I guess, because you're not exactly. going to go through that again. Exactly. So here, here's three characteristics of successful subsidy schemes that come straight to mind that I think ought to be better considered uh, by uh, governments, by agencies, by financing houses, even by banks, if they are engaging in the design uh, of subsidy schemes for energy efficiency in buildings. And uh, yeah, that way you also design the, the subsidy schemes for the different socioeconomic groups because then the percentage that you offer would vary depending on the socioeconomic category of the uh, occupant of the building or home that's being targeted. If you take a, a scan through a lot of uh, national newspapers especially, you see um, a lot of claims made about building renovations, especially in the last few years when it's become more of a public issue, shall we mm -hmm. say. Um, some of them are quite outlandish. I think anyone uh, with any kind of common sense can see that they're not true, or at least they only have a slight kernel of truth to them. That's why I thought that we could just have a short round of uh, renovation uh, fact check-in with mm -hmm. you as an expert, just to you know give us the actual uh, truth of the matter, because a lot of the time the narrative is that renovations are a burden, unaffordable, or, or even outright damaging to um, either a house or um, their budget. Um, the first one, I mean, we've touched on it already, and it's one of the ones that we see quite often, is that there is no money for renovations. We've got other priorities that we need to tackle. You know, we need to put uh, nuclear power or wind turbines or, you know, name it something else, and that this should just be an afterthought. Well, obviously, I don't agree with that. And, uh, and there is money, as we've... Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the, 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 the reality is that if you're looking to achieve long-term, even medium-term energy and climate targets, the addressing the building sector is unavoidable because it uses 40% of all the primary energy generated in Europe, 40%. I mean, this is way beyond any other sector uh, in, in the European economy. So if at that high level you want to have uh, a real impact on energy and climate targets, the buildings have got to be addressed, that energy waste has to be addressed. Um, beyond that, uh, it is in the self-interest of the building owner to undertake energy renovations mm -hmm. because we have no real control over energy price fluctuations, which is with what we've seen in the last 18 months since the aggression of Russia on Ukraine. And so if you want to buffer yourself against probable future price fluctuations, the best defense is to have a building that has zero or very low energy demand. So you have to buy very few kilowatt hours to keep your building comfortable, warm and healthy. Then no matter how much the fluctuations in the energy price per unit, the, the actual impact on you as a consumer will be minimized. So. I'd like to emphasize it's in your self-interest to get your building energy renovated because it's going to be a benefit to you for 10, 15, 20, 30 years into the future. Uh, so maybe that's a thought that's uh, worth 
uh, putting out there about uh, energy renovation. The, the second thing I wanted to fact check was that, um, and I found this one quite strange, but I see it quite a lot for some reason, people will have to sell their homes if they can't afford to renovate them because of European legislation. So that's not true either, because the European legislation sets a framework, and the framework indeed is aiming to raise the overall energy performance of the building stock by 2050 to what we call zero emission standards. All of us will have to do this at some point moving forward. And in designing the schemes, the member states will take into account the characteristics of the building stock at national level and will tailor the requirements in such a way that it's achievable by all building owners. And I think that question um, about being obliged to sell your home is really not to understand the dynamics of the property market. All properties change hands on a frequent basis, some as frequently as every three to seven years, some on a longer cycle of 15 to maybe 30 years, but all of those cycles are within the time period that we're talking about. So there will be no obligation to uh, sell your home. Uh, there will over time be an obligation to ensure that, uh, as far, uh, that your home or your office or your school building, there'll be uh, all buildings, uh, achieve a certain uh, perform energy performance level. And the reason for it is the public good. This is good for society as a whole. This gives us more autonomy as a region and it gives us better living conditions. So helping our productivity, helping our well-being. And it's just, as I said earlier in the conversation, Sam, it's a win-win-win uh, energy renovation. And it's not, uh, it's not ever going to lead to these drastic measures that are being touted in national media. I think it is almost a link with, uh, like I said before, the car emissions saga that people also think there that they'll have to get rid of their cars if they don't stick to certain emission mm. limits. No, the, the simple fact is you won't be able to buy a new one. Correct. And yeah. it's similar with houses, right? Similar with houses. Exactly. New, new homes will be built to certain standards. They already are being built. Really are. Yes. I mean, the European Union and the member states have already put in place the, the regulations that mean that new buildings are what we call today's nearly zero energy buildings. And that has, been, uh, has become the norm, and anyone buying a building today uh, prob probably has no gas connection because it's so low, uh, uh, there's such a low need for heating and cooling that it's satisfied by just the passive uh, uses in the building or a small array on the roof. So it's already the case for new buildings, and the big challenge is the existing stock. And the third and final one, and this, this largely comes from my, my reading of uh, Italian media, which I think will become obvious from the, the fact check that we do. Um, heritage buildings will have to be torn down because we cannot renovate them. So this is real nonsense. <laughs> because in all European legislation, uh, heritage buildings are always given the opportunity to be exempted from these requirements. And uh, member states will have the possibility to, to exempt up to 22% of buildings if the parliament text is adopted. And anyway, heritage and buildings of cultural importance should not be touched. As an architect, I wouldn't wish that to happen. However, on the other side of the coin, the reality is that there is a great deal we can do for heritage buildings. And you this evening here in Slovakia will visit Pezinac Castle, which is a heritage building, which was deep energy renovated and is now a class A building. But the heritage quality of this building please tell me afterwards or add it as a footnote to this podcast, is 
absolutely as you would expect it to be for a heritage building. It is beautiful and absolutely magnificent. The, the character is still fully intact, but it's a very low energy building. So the two sides of the coin are there. Yes, you can exempt, so they're not going to be knocked down or abandoned. Or two, there are a lot of measures you can actually apply to heritage buildings to dramatically reduce their, their need for heating and cooling already. And that should be known more widely as well. There's a great deal of research, a high number of new products on the market that allow heritage buildings without loss of value or loss of character to be energy renovated. Maybe it's a good thought to end the, the podcast on. <laughs> thank you, Adrian, for the great chat. Uh, thank you for joining the Policy Dispatch. I think we've had a great mixture of everything to do with the energy transition there. Um, so thank you for joining me. It's been a real pleasure, Sam. Thanks. So there you go. Buildings risk becoming politicised when they really shouldn't be. Uh, definitely not negatively in any case. Problems may face the sector ahead when it comes to settling on EU-wide legislation, but plenty is being done in the meantime. Uh, to align various policies. Watch this space for more news on what happens in this increasingly important and fascinating sector. Just as a footnote to the episode, I can indeed confirm that the A-rated castle in Slovakia that Adrian mentioned was indeed a wonderful building, and that it was impossible to tell to the untrained eye anyway uh, that it had been renovated. It also had a rather good wine cellar. Now, at the top of the show, I asked you how much the global building's asset class is worth. 17, 21, 172, or 217 trillion dollars. It is, in fact, the staggeringly high and totally unimaginable 217 trillion dollars. That's a lot of cash, which, put to good use through clever financial instruments, holds the potential to do an equally high and unimaginable amount of good. Thank you as always for tuning into the Policy Dispatch. I'll be back next time with another guest to talk about the world of the energy transition. Mm-hmm.